about all that that was just said. You know, it's such a truth, such a blessing to think about that God sent His Son to this world to be the light and to light our hearts. And to everyone here who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, He's come to give you light, and and not only light, but life, eternal life that shall never perish. Praise God for that. Amen. You know, uh, we talk about folks that are lost. You've heard that expression. Uh, When I was growing up as a youngster, I remember my family uh, going to Niagara Falls. And uh, we had a uh, little camper that fits on the back of a pickup. Is that what they call them, campers? I think that's what it was. And uh, we went to get the showers at nighttime after we'd gotten there and everything, and and uh, I remember leaving the restroom and coming back and uh, going to our space number. The only trouble was that there was A, B, C, and D campgrounds. And I did not know which campground we were in. And, and I'm going to tell you something. To this day, I still remember the fright that was in my soul in trying to find my way. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I'm trying to find my way. Well, it's not my way, it's God's way. 
And God said that He sent His Son to die on that cross so that we could find that way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, He comes into our soul and He lights our life and He gives us eternal life. And when we perish, when we perish, uh, when we die, He says, you'll never perish. You'll have everlasting life. Aren't you glad for that? For 45 years, this month, this month, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And it's been a journey. You know, Ernie, the, the verse that you read there in 1 John chapter 5 is so true. You know, that you just you discover more about God. You discover more about what He wants in our lives. And He lights our path. So not only does He give us a way to heaven, which is a free gift, but now we're on this path and we are a work in progress. And God continues to illuminate the path so that we can walk and not stumble. If we do stumble, though, He's right there to help us up. Isn't that a wonderful God that we have? He loves us that much. If you do not know Him, come to know Him. And that's by opening your heart and inviting Him into your life. And if you're not certain about how all that works and everything, just come and visit with us before the service, uh, before you leave. And I tell you what, if God speaking to your heart, we have time at the end of the service for people to come up and have an invitation time. And however God will work in our hearts. In Sunday school this morning, Brother Turner... Oh, my soul. Wasn't that good, uh, uh, Beverly? Uh, Beverly, Beverly, uh, we just, we had such the privilege to hear this morning and everything. And, and it was just such a rich. And, but as Brother Turner is, is giving a Sunday school lesson, God's starting to speak to my heart. And as he speaks to my heart, he's showing me things that I need to work on. And one of the things was, was this, this idea that Lot, we're in Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all that stuff that's going on there. He, he really didn't take God seriously and his family didn't take him seriously. And I started thinking about that. I wonder how many people take me seriously and understanding that there's a heaven and there's a hell. And someday you're going to be somewhere. And somehow, Brother Mike... We have pacified and just kind of given out the gospel message in, in a casual style. And there's an urgency. Jesus Christ said in the gospels, he says, compel them to come in. We need to have an urgency. And God spoke to my heart in that this morning. That sometimes I present the gospel as, well, you know, if you want to do it, don't want to do it. And, 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 and truly, a man makes a choice. But they need to understand that urgency that someday... We're all going to die and face Jesus Christ. And if you face Jesus Christ in your sins, you have no hope of heaven. And Jesus died to wash away all of our sins, past, present, and future. When God saved me, He knew the times that I would stumble after I'd gotten saved. And He forgave me of all of my sins. The eternal penalty has been removed. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. I encourage us to understand that. We try to make the gospel very clear here. And also understand that we are a work in progress. And that when you get saved, you're not perfect. Only God was perfect. But God makes us His children. And He has instruction for us in His Word. And so, let's get into our lesson this morning. We, we started uh, this last week. We're in not, not the life of Christ. But... Uh, the Sabbath, Lord, 
of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of everything and he needs to be the Lord of our lives. And so as we, we started this, this uh, uh, last week and we're talking and continuing on in this abundant life, we didn't finish the message last week. And sometimes when I don't finish a message, they can become series, all right? So uh, we are in a series, The Life of Christ, and we're going to start a mini-series, if I could say this, on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we got into this, we got into Luke chapter 6. And we read there. And the reason a lot of times I'm going to be going and looking at Luke and then branching out is because Luke was written to the Greeks. That would be us, Gentiles. You know, Luke was the only Gentile writer. Remember me saying that last week. All the other writers were Jewish writers. And uh, he's writing to the Greeks. And, and Luke puts it in chronological order. Mark also puts it in chronological order. He's writing to the Romans. Matthew, uh, Matthew puts it in topical order. So you can read something in chapter 12 that might be in Mark chapter 2. You see what I'm saying? So understand that. So as we're reading through the Gospels, uh, they call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels because they are the most similar. And what you'll find is certain things will be in one and certain things in the other because of who they're writing to. Not that they discount each other or not discredit each other, but you get the whole picture when you study them all together. And they fit wonderfully. They call it the harmony of the Gospels. And so we're going to study it that way. And so as we start now the second year, understand this is the second year of Christ's ministry. You say, how do you know that? It's because in chapter uh, 6 of Luke, verse 1, uh, he says, And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first. He's talking about the Passover there, the first Sabbath. That's how the Jews would look at that, all right? The first Sabbath. Now he's talking about the second Sabbath. So this is the second Sabbath. The first Sabbath is when he cleansed the temple. That was the start of his public ministry. This is the second Sabbath. When you study the life of Christ, we're going to be looking at five Sabbath, excuse me, five Passovers. He dies on the last Passover, all right? So that's interesting in the chronology. So the first year is over. Now he starts the second year. And we talked about what happened in the second year. The crippled man's hands were healed. He has the third calling of his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, the anointing of the outcast woman, the centurion's servant healed, the raising of the widow's son, the mnemonic healed, uh, the calming of the storm, the healing of the demonic, the uh, woman with the issue of blood, the blind healed, John the Baptist beheaded, the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water. Whew, that was a busy year, wouldn't you say? And because of all those things and these miracles and, and, and everything, the crowds are, are getting bigger and bigger. More people are, are pressing to hear this Messiah. But he's also attracted another crowd. They're the religious crowd. And so last week we got into this religious crowd as they were there and, and his disciples were uh, uh, picking up uh, the corn uh, uh, out of the fields and eating it. And they accused them of breaking the Sabbath. Now, this is the second time that they're accusing him of something. They started following him and sensing what was going on. And they were in this room, remember, when they lowered the man uh, on the cot down to the, the floor. And, and uh, Jesus said unto the man, your sins be forgiven you. And the Pharisee says, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can forgive sins. 
Is that a true statement? Absolutely. And who were they looking at? God. The pre uh, not pre-incarnate, God in the flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. And so you can imagine the stir and the talk as they, they get on. Now they're following him and they're, they're observing him. And that's what we saw here in on the Sabbath. And, and last week we tried to bring out what is the Sabbath all about. Because people today are confused about the Sabbath. And so let me just reiterate a couple things. Uh, Sabbath means rest. It was given to man for rest. In Mark chapter 2 it says that, the, that man was not made for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was made for man. Rest is good. Amen? Laziness is not good. (laughs) All right? There's a difference. You work hard and we rest. And so it is a part of creation and shows that creation and all. But understand, not only was it a rest, but there was a relationship in the Sabbath. And the relationship was, was in a covenant. And a covenant is between two people. Who are those people? God and Israel. God and Israel. And we looked at Exodus uh, uh, chapter 31 verses 13 through 17. I encourage you to write down some of these verses. You'll see that he makes this covenant with Israel. Understand that America is not Israel. The church is not Israel. Guess who is Israel? Israel. We have an intelligent church here. Israel is Israel. And what you're going to discover is as you go back into the Old Testament, listen to me. We see the example of rest and creation and God resting, and that is an example for us. It is actually the seventh day is the number of completeness. Dr. David Jeremiah was preaching on this this morning. The number of completion and the number of perfection. They're not eight days in a week. Praise God for that, huh? <laughs> Some of us would have said, man, it would been nicer if there's only five days in the week, you know. But no, there's seven days. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. And there he rested. But this word Sabbath, in your Bible, if you did a word search on it, Larry, you will not find this word until you get into Exodus. It's not used in Genesis. It's used in Exodus. And then after, listen to me, after Israel leaves Egypt. Because he's called them to be a nation. You see what I'm saying? That's why Exodus 31 says this is a covenant between me and Israel. Catch that. Then, as you go into the New Testament, you'll see the word Sabbath used there. It sometimes means rest. Sometimes it means week. Sometimes it means seventh. Okay, and today, uh, that seventh day of the week would be Saturday. Our calendar is set up so that the seventh day of the week. And you'll see it used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pretty extensively. Because this is before Jesus arose. Then after he arose, it's used a few times in the book of Acts. 
which I said last week was kind of transitioning. And you can imagine some of the struggles of these Jewish Christians who had this bylaws, this constitution that was given by God to them in this covenant. Now they're not under the law. They're under grace. And how do they deal with that? You see, they're not, God's not dealing with the nation Israel today. God's dealing with us and we are in a new covenant with Him. It's the covenant of grace. Now, I'm not a covenant theologian, but a covenant actually means a contract between two people. And God has made a contract with us. When we accept Jesus Christ, our Savior, we belong to Him. Praise the Lord for that. So in the book of Acts, you'll see it used a few times. There are not very many, but usually in reference to the Jews and to them going into the synagogue. But you'll come in now into the church epistles. The church epistles. And it's only used twice. Okay? Is that significant? Absolutely. Let me give you these places there. It's, uh, we referred to this last week. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as was given order for, to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the, what? First day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. You'll see now in the church epistles them coming together on Sunday. They came Sunday. They came every day. Uh, actually, you read Acts chapter 2 there. Uh, at the very beginning, they came every day. But now you see them assembling on Sunday, becoming more of that special day because it shows the resurrection of Christ. That's the day He arose. And it also is the new creation that we are in Christ. Now, the word there, week, do you see that word week? That is the word Sabbath. So it can be the seventh day or seven days. Y'all catch that? So sometimes words have multiple uh, meanings and depending on the passage there. And so rightly translated, this is the first day of the week. All right, the seven days. Let every man lay by him a store as God has prospered him that there be no gathering when I come. Now, as the church epistles continue, and now there's a mixture of the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and you, you understand that there's a struggle here. I mean, here God had been working with this nation and, and having this covenant. And what about these Jews? And, and man, they, they, they really had some struggles. There was a council that was established in Acts chapter 15 called the Jerusalem Council where these disciples came together and said, how do we deal with this? We got people getting saved and we got the Jews getting saved, yet they want to still put people under the law. And they came up with three regulations, basically, you know, to, to do this and to that and, 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 and bottom line there. But the problem continues. And maybe even today, people struggle with this. Are we supposed to keep the Sabbath? That's one of the Ten Commandments. If I break the Sabbath, am I going to go to hell? And by the way, there are some people who preach that or teach that. The only way you go to hell, my friend, is to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. Understand that. So are we covenant, are we, are we ten, do we break the Ten Commandments by not keeping the Sabbath? Do you remember what I said last time? When you got saved, you entered into the Sabbath. You have fulfilled the Sabbath in entering into Jesus Christ's rest. That is Hebrews chapter 4. 
I encourage you to know where these passages are. The Bible is very clear on this. And you don't see Jesus Christ reiterating, keep the Sabbath, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, guess, got that? And let me give you the other place that it is used in the New Testament. Just so that you can see this. In Colossians, Paul is writing to the, uh, those in Colossia, and, and they struggled with this still. In fact, there were people who were trying to distort grace. Trying to distort the gospel. And they would bring in their traditions or their structures into the church. And so Paul writes to them. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the what? Sabbath Day. Now, all these things up there have to do with the Jews, right? And they're trying to bring in this law. We're not under law. We are under grace. That doesn't mean that there's not good common sense and God has done away with all of his moral laws. He has not done away with his moral laws. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he established ceremonial laws and he established national law for just like we have a declaration of independence in the Constitution of the United States. So the Israelites had that as a theocracy. And so he says, don't let anybody judge you by meat. Do you all remember that in the Old Testament, the Jews did not have bacon for breakfast? And when God opened up the doors to the Gentiles, he used Peter, who, by the way, had the keys of the gospel, and he was to take them to the different nationalities and people out there. And uh, remember the time when he had this, this dream or vision or whatever it might be, and he was there in a stupor of some sort, we're not sure exactly what, and, and all of a sudden this, this, this sheet comes down from heaven, and it's got all these animals on it. And God says, you go and you eat. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to eat what is unclean. And you remember what God says to Peter? He says, don't you call unclean what I've cleansed. You know, because of grace. <laughs> that was the carnal side of me that just came out. Because of grace, we can have bacon for breakfast. Amen to that. <laughs> that is carnal, isn't it? Because of grace, there are two laws. What are those two laws? Love God with everything about you and love others the same way. Upon this hangs all the laws. Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. Listen to what it says here. He says in verse 7, he says, which are a shadow of the things to come. In other words, that Old Testament law not only was given as a covenant, not only given as, as a contract between God and Israel, but it was a shadow of things to come. You can read that and you can learn about your relationship and what God has done for you. Wow. But the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. In other words, you might choose to be a vegan, right? Isn't that right? You could be that way. He says, and worshiping of angels, introducing uh, into those things which he hath not seen. He says, you know, don't, don't, you know, sometimes we'll take things upon ourselves that maybe somebody else won't do. There are certain things that I don't do that maybe that uh, you would do in all. It's not thus saith the Lord. It's a part of something that's in my own life. But understand it doesn't make you 
spiritual. Or it doesn't make you holy. Now, it might make you obedient. Because if God tells you to do something or tells you not to do something, guess who's the boss? Okay? So he says, though, listen what happens. There's a group of people that start, you know, carrying their Bibles a certain way and, and everything and maybe dressed in a particular way. And I'm not discounting dress and all these kinds of things like this. But sometimes it goes a little bit too far and to think, well, you know, I wish people were more spiritual like I am. I believe God's a God of order and I want to do the very best that I can for him. He deserves my very best. But I am a sinner saved by grace. And it says, people get vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There is a difference between traditions and thus saith the Lord. And we've got to be careful that we do not mix those. And that's what's happened here. In this passage, they, they took of the corn. And his disciples were eating it. And the Pharisees says, oh my goodness, your disciples are breaking it. And he wanted to show them they're not breaking it. Yes, they might be breaking the 39 traditions that you've put on the Sabbath. But they're not breaking the Old Testament law. We read this last week, God's welfare system. Uh, when you come to your neighbor's vineyard, and we told you not to do this now, uh, today, all right? You don't go over to your neighbor's and pick their grapes. Uh, you could get in a lot of trouble there doing that. But, but there was gleamers back then, and, and we understood that. And, and that was how you took care of the poor. They'd leave the corners of the field and things like that. He says, you may eat those grapes to your own your, your fill. But, but don't take it away. In other words, leave it there for others to come and enjoy too. Sometimes people can take advantage of what's being offered. And then he goes on in verse 25. He says, uh, When you come in the standing corn of thy neighbor, uh, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. Well, you just avail yourself to the harvest and carry it off. That was not what God intended. You see that? So the Pharisees had missed this. They had missed the taking care of those in need, and, and uh, they, they, they miss the weightier matters of the law. And such Matthew's account brings out the idea of grace and mercy and the idea of helping others. But they got so crossing their dots and T's that they missed such an important things. Well, do you think they got the message? No. Do we always get the message? We'll miss it. So round two, we said that last week. That's where we kind of ended up uh, last week. Uh, it says in Luke chapter 6 and starting in verse 6. And it came to pass on another Sabbath. Do you think God wants us to get what he's talking about here when he puts these two back to back? Absolutely. He doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss. Now, Luke is written to the, the Greeks. And so we should understand what he's saying here. He entered the synagogue. That's when they met together. And he taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. You know, Eleanor, I am so thankful that through therapy that your hand is starting to get a little bit more movement to you. Is that correct, uh, uh, Eleanor? But wouldn't it be something if, you know, and I've, I've known Eleanor uh, a good year now. If you become our church, she had a stroke, her arms paralyzed. And so in the service, there was a man like Eleanor, withered hand. 
And the Lord is looking around and the Pharisees are looking around. And guess what the Pharisees are looking for? I wonder if he's going to heal that person on the Sabbath. How tragic. Notice what it says there. He, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, what does verse 7 say? Watched. Now, this is not my f- favorite word in the Bible for watch. Uh, the word in the Greek is Gregorius. Okay. This is a different word. This is the word paratero. Paratero. It's only used, I think, like four times in the Bible. But it's always used in the idea of watching. Negatively. And the word para, and it's an interesting word because para means with. So they're following you to watch you fall. And the reason why they're watching is because they've already come up with a verdict. You see that? They've already decided in their minds that this guy is not what we want. That's a wrong way to approach life. You know, I tell folks, I says, you know, we are a work in progress. And I have a lot of progress still to make. And trouble is, people are watching other people and not looking at themselves. And that's not right. Now, I don't want to discount again for us to come alongside. And if I see my father, my father, my brother in struggling, the Bible says we're supposed to come and help that brother and restore that brother in the spirit of meekness and truth, right? But sometimes people get the idea, I'm going to look, see what he's doing over there. What's the neighbors doing? It's kind of that suspicious watching. Mm. He knew that they were watching. This word paratero uh, means to come alongside and to watch to find fault. There's another word that's similar to this word, though I mean completely opposite of the word. It's called paraclete. You ever heard of that word? Paraclete, it is used of the Holy Spirit, which means I'm going to come alongside and I'm going to help and I'm going to encourage. Which should we be, paratero or paraclete? We'll be the cleats, all right? We're going to be the cleats. We'll call our new uh, organization the cleats. It is used of the Holy Spirit. God gave the paraclete to come along and help us on our journey. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, it says... When we assemble together, we're supposed to be paracletes to our brothers and sisters to help them. Not help them to continue in sin. Not help them go down the wrong path. Help them and encourage them in the right direction. Amen to that? So I want to you, we need to get make sure we're getting a good balance here. Because some people don't want to be told what to do. And they've got a real struggle with authority in God's word. If it is thus saith the Lord, we say, yes, sir. Absolutely. He is Lord. We're going to sing that at the end of our service today. We want to make sure uh, that He is the Lord of our lives, first of salvation and then surrendering to every aspect. So notice here, they watched Him, whether He would heal on the Sabbath day, and they might find an accusation. They might find an accusation. In other words, they had already made up their mind. The verdict was in before the trial. But notice verse 8. He, what? Knew 
their thoughts. Let me ask you a question. How many believe that God knows your thoughts? <laughs> Absolutely. You say, you know, I'm going to try to be real good and I'm not going to try to give my thoughts to somebody else. God knows your thoughts. My thoughts need to be right. I need to bring them in line with the Scriptures. He knew their thoughts. Now, it's interesting. There are two Greek words for know. There's one that's gnosko, which is the intimate knowledge. When we got saved, we know God and God knows us as an intimate relationship that we have with God. Then there's also the word, and I'm not sure what the, I can't remember what the, the Greek word, it is the word that's used here. It is know by observation. And Jesus Christ knew their thoughts by observing them. He knew what was going on in their minds. You know, sometimes our body language, we can know other people's thoughts. Isn't that true? I mean, you can try to cover and be something that we're not, but God knows and we should know that we should be what we should be before Him. And it says, God knew their thoughts. And it says that He said unto the man, which... He, I mean, can you imagine? He, he knows that if he's going to proceed with the direction that he's planning to go, he's going to irritate some people. Is that okay? Is it okay if Jesus Christ irritates some people? You know, sometimes the offense is truth. He says to the withered man, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose and stood up in the midst. And I got this a little confused in the first service. But here Jesus says, Eleanor, you come here and stand right here with me. I mean, so that everybody could see. And they're looking around thinking, uh, we know where this is going. We know what's going to happen. Now, do you think that's a good attitude that the Pharisees had? Here is somebody that has a withered hand. Not able to have the physicians heal it. He says, stand here in the midst. And, and he arose, he stood there. Verse 9 says, then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Now, according to the law in the Old Testament, the answer would be, yes, it is good to do good. But you'll find they probably did not answer. Because they, they just, they're just, they're observing. Where's this going? And so, uh, again, this perception in all, uh, in, in Matthew's account, listen to what Matthew says. This is the same story in Matthew. And Matthew, again, adds some, uh, some uh, language there that's not in Luke, but it's going on at the same time. So certain parts of the story are there in Luke, certain parts are in Matthew, certain parts are in Mark. And you get the whole picture when you read all three of them together. He said unto them, and again, Matthew's written to the Jews. He says, uh, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, 
will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Isn't that interesting? Now, this is what he's bringing out to the Jews because to the Jews and maybe even to the Pharisees primarily, this is an economic decision. My sheep needs to be rescued or I will suffer economic loss. I mean, he hits them right between the eyes. Interesting. Isn't it? That is very interesting. And he says, How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath day? So this takes place in this conversation and they're sitting there just kind of taking it all in. And then look, uh, look what he says. Verse 10. He's looking around about unto them and he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. Wow. Now, if you were there, if this morning, We've known Eleanor for a long time. If all of a sudden Eleanor says, here's my hand. Wouldn't we be shouting hallelujah? Would you be shouting hallelujah? You sure would be. And I thank the Lord for the therapy that's getting just a little bit more use of that hand. Praise God for that. But if you were in that service and all of a sudden that hand comes out. Wow. If, if you were a Pharisee, wouldn't you say, wow. By the way, this isn't the second healing that they're seeing. I mean, this isn't the first healing that they're seeing. This is the second or the third. Was that their response? You see, when a person's made up his mind, it doesn't matter. It seems like what God does. We need to be careful that we enter into such a state of mind as that. Because the Bible uh, says here, uh, uh, as, as we go into... Uh, uh, verse 11, and I want you to see a word here. The hand was restored. Verse 11, it says, and they were filled with what? They were filled with madness. How could he do such a thing? Because the life was not as precious as their traditions. Wow. They were filled with madness and commanded that one another that how they might, what they might do to Jesus. This word madness is a compound word. Uh, in the Greek, there's the alpha, uh, which is a negative, it means not, and then the word for mind. In other words, this was not, they couldn't comprehend this. This was beyond their understanding. Their minds were so entrenched into their traditions that they couldn't see it. And we see the same type of word used here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Now as Jamus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also, what? Resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds... Reprobate concerning the faith. You know it is a dangerous thing not to receive God's word. And let me tell you something. Don't play around with it. If God's speaking to your heart about something, don't ignore it. Don't resist it. 
God says, a man who resists or hardens his heart after often being reproved shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. But if God's still speaking to your heart, that means there's still a remedy. Amen to that? But there comes a time when God says, all right. You'll see the same type of idea here in Romans chapter 1 where it says that God shows the power of His through creation and we see the God of heaven through what we see around us. But people hardened their hearts and they resisted the truth. The Bible talks about in the end times that people will resist the truth and want fables instead of the truth. Become reprobate. And this idea of not understanding is a description of a lost person who has been bent against God. And our country is going in that direction. Notice what he says in verse 9. But they shall proceed no further for their folly. The word folly there is the same word, is the word madness in uh, Luke's account. Folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs was also. And you know what it's saying there is the idea is, you know, to us, it's, some things are so clear, aren't they? Because God's lighted our soul and we see this, but a lost person doesn't see this, doesn't understand. But as a person goes against God and he fights against God through moral issues or through denying God, he becomes madness in his own mind. And I want to encourage you, while God's still got you, still got your mind, Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if He's speaking to your heart, accept Him today. Amen to that? And amen. Well, guess what they did? How are we going to get this guy? Mark tells us what they did. They went out. They looked around. These are the the Pharisees. uh, About with anger. Being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He said unto the men... Oh, excuse me, I'm reading this. Stretch, uh, this is Jesus saying, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched out his hand and it was restored. Oh, notice what they did. Here in verse 6, the Pharisees went forth and straightway they took counsel with who? The Herodians. Now that's interesting. Mark brings that out. Who's Mark writing to? The Romans. Guess who were the political adversaries of Rome? The Herodians. Though they be Jews, they were the political activists. And now the Pharisees, who were more of a pacifist, they decided, and by the way, before this, they were not bedfellows. It's amazing how people can come together For a cause. And they enlist the Herodians. How they might destroy him. Because they knew the Herodians were more militaristic. Isn't that something? Wow. But this is the beginning of year two. Do you think they're going to get Jesus? He's got three years. Four years total. Three years left before he's crucified. And the Bible says no one's going to take his life. He freely gives his life as a gift to us for our salvation.
Amen and amen. Well, our time is up. Guess where this brings us to? Come back next week. Actually, uh, look at that picture. Guess what that picture is of? Sermon on the Mount. You see, as you continue reading, you'll discover that Jesus, I mean, the crowd wanted to kill him and everything. And so he withdraws himself. Matthew twelve fifteen says he withdraws himself. He comes and he calls the official formal calling of his 12 disciples. And then they go up a mountain and, and they follow him up on this mountain. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 19 that many came up there seeing how they could be healed, how they could touch him, whatever they could get from him. And he sets down. He wants to teach them the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, it's interesting that it's right after this uh, Sabbath idea and the legalism that had come in and the traditionalism that's come in, Jesus wants to change their attitude. Y'all heard about that before? It's called the Beatitudes. And then, as we get into the Sermon on the Mounts, then it becomes the be-doings. All right? So just remember that. You heard that here at Westside Baptist Church. The be-doings. That's it. Father, as we think about your amazing grace to us, we think about your kindness and love and grace and mercy in sending your Son to this world to rescue us from our sins. Lord, we're going to see that in the Sermon on the Mount, it also is going to show us how short we come to ever coming to that place of our own righteousness. Just like the Ten Commandments were given to show us how short we come, so the Sermon on the Mount shows us the utter incapability of our own righteousness. Even our good works are filthy rags in your sight. And Lord, if there's some folks here that just need to put their faith in you and what you've done to them and light their soul and give them illumination to what life's all about and the destination of where they're heading, oh God, I pray that you'll speak to hearts and that today people will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> As your head are bowed and your eyes are closed, <coughs> This is my question. You've listened well. And this morning you say, I have a need. <clears throat> I don't know what that need is, maybe. But you do. But right now, the greatest need that mankind has is to make sure they're on their way to heaven. Yes. And Jesus Christ wants to give you a gift. Not something you can work for or you can earn. It is a gift. It's the good news the gift is Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross. And He died for you. And when I understood that Jesus died for me 45 years ago, I put my trust in what He did on the cross. And when He said it is finished, there's nothing more we can add to it. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, to take away all of your sin, the eternal penalty of sin, which is damnation, And to receive Him for eternal life. Why don't you do that right now? Why don't you invite Him into your heart? 
If God has drawn you into His presence and understanding, then today is the day of salvation for you, my friend. Don't poo-poo what you've heard. God is speaking and He wants your attention. And if He's speaking to your heart, then make the right decision. And before you leave, I encourage you, either visit with me or make sure that you've invited Christ into your life and He will give you eternal life. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why don't you invite Him into your heart? As He knocks on your door, open it and let Him come in. Oh, you'll be eternally thankful. Forty-five years I've had the privilege of knowing my wonderful Lord. Invite Him in. And then secondly, maybe like me this morning, God spoke to my heart about a couple things. And as I was in Sunday school this morning, I was thinking, Oh, Father, I need to write this down and make sure that I act upon what God is dealing with my heart about. If God has dealt with your heart about something this morning, you need to write it down or you need to come in an invitation time or pray with somebody and make it so that it's a stake in your life that you will change or you will follow or you will do what He asks you to do. Because as God calls men to salvation, He calls on our hearts to progress in a way and to mature our lives and to take the steps. And He he uses His Word to put a light onto our path and a lamp onto our feet. And it lights up as how we are to put our steps. And the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered. Make sure you listen and follow. Please, my friends, Because all of us will stand before Him someday. You're not going to stand before the preacher someday. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand before Him and give an account of my life and the stewardship of my life. You know, those Jews, they they got it caught when it was in the economic structure of losing a sheep. You know, a lot of people make poor choices based on the economics of their life. And I encourage you to make the right choices. If God speaks to your heart, never resist a generous impulse that God might have put on your life. Let's look to Him, the author and the finisher of our faith, to guide us and to lead us. So, Lord, as we come now to sing, He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead. He's Lord. Lord, He's a, You are the Lord of our lives. And we need to live our lives in such that this world sees the urgency of our obedience. Oh, Father, I'm afraid that sometimes we're lulled to sleep. Sometimes we don't hear your words clearly. God, I pray that you've spoken to hearts. It has been my prayer this morning that you will do the work in lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to show us what we need, the decisions and the directions. For those that need to be saved, Lord, help them. Maybe they've already invited Christ into their heart. Maybe some need counsel. Maybe some need some prayer. But God, whatever it might be, Father, help us not to leave without doing business with you. For we have not come to be entertained nor to have intellectual stimulation. We have come, Father, to open our hearts to whatever you might have for our lives. I praise you for that. Thank you for working in my heart this morning. God, I pray that we'll not get over or forget your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen.